Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we come before You and we, just, we worship You during this time. Uh, what an opportunity to gather as brothers and sisters in Christ, to gather as co-workers in the Gospel, as partners with Jesus Christ, heirs of the Kingdom, that we can gather here and we can worship You together, we can sing praises to Your name, we can read Scripture, we can take all of these things uh, and seek the glory of Your name. We pray that Jesus would be magnified above all else, that You would fill us with Your Spirit as we listen to Your Word and as we're transformed by it. Please teach us. Open our eyes. Open our minds. Open our hearts and soften us that we would walk with You. Amen. Well, first thing we're going to do is I'm going to get some... There we go. You already... Gift of foresight or something there, right? Thank you, Angie. You can no longer see without these. Several years ago when I was preparing for my ordination, I, um, I was writing a document that basically was a summary of how I understand the, the doctrine of the church. And then, and then I had to um, stand before a group of pastors and I had to defend my, my uh, basically a dissertation on, on uh, theology. And for those of you that know me, I tend to be a little bit more on the academic side of things. And um, there's definitely a, an academic um, flair. I think God's gifted me with the gift of knowledge. And so I dive in all the way. For those of you who know my wife, my wife has the gift of wisdom and and uh, she just has a, a, a way of being able to put things into words where I just, you know, it just makes it easily applicable. And so oftentimes I'll go to my wife and I'll, I'll say, well, I've been, I've been studying this theological concept or I've been looking at this passage and, and how do I, how do I not, I'm struggling to put this into words that, that just communicate clearly. And, uh, and so I'll explain it and then oftentimes my wife will just say, well, doesn't it basically mean this? And I went, yeah, I've been working all week on that, but yeah, that's what it means. Um, God's gifted her in a special way for that. And so when I was working on my, my um, theology statement for my ordination, uh, I would come to a few things every once in a while and say, well, what do you think about this one? And she would batter back and forth with me, and, and that helped me a lot. And, and then I came to a concept that we call the hypostatic union. And it's just a fancy way of talking about what we believe about Jesus, that we believe that Jesus is 100% God and that Jesus is 100% man. And in the incarnation of Christ, there's a perfect melody, a perfect um, uh, blending. I need my wife to give me the words here. I'm stumbling over them. A perfect blending uh, of these, these um, two natures in one. And he, at the same time, is 100% God, 100% man. He doesn't lose either one of them. And so there's this union of these two natures. So I came to Angie and I asked her, I said, so with that in mind, I said, I'm, I'm stumbling over the words, I'm trying to write it and, and, and put it in, in terms that, that is just going to communicate well. And, and Angie said, well, you know, it, it kind of sounds like the, um, the, the, the fabric sheet that you put in the, uh, in, in the clothes washer, in the clothes dryer, and it, and it gets stuck to your leg afterwards. Is that what hypostatic is then? I said, no, no, that's not what it is. But when time came and I was defending my, my theology statement, uh, I was up in front of all these pastors and uh, one of the pastors specifically asked me to explain the hypostatic union. So you know what I told them? said, it sounds like the fabric sheet that gets stuck to your leg after it comes out of the dryer. 
Well, we're going to talk about the hypostatic union today a bit, because in Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, we come to this beautiful passage that approaches this concept of the incarnation where we find the deity of Jesus Christ perfectly meeting the humanity of Christ. This past two weeks, the author of Hebrews has led us into a discussion about how Jesus is superior to the angels in every way. We see him... We see, we've seen that in Christ, God has spoken to humanity in order to, to perfectly communicate who He is. In chapter 1, Hebrews strings together several Old Testament passages that show us that, that Jesus has a superior position than the angels. No angel has ever been invited to sit at the right hand of God the Father. But Jesus sits there today having completed His work. Hebrews shows us that Jesus has superior honor to the angels. No angel is ever granted the honor of being worshipped, but Jesus is. And Hebrews shows us that Jesus has a superior existence to the angels. Angels are messengers. They were created by God. But we understand from Scripture that Jesus Himself is God. He is the One who created the entire universe, and He will be there when it rolls up again like an old garment. Hebrews 1 demonstrates that Jesus is superior. He has superior authority to all of the angels. And ultimately, the author of Hebrews, what he's showing us is that Jesus Christ is God Himself. And He is worthy of your worship. And He is worthy of my worship. And so there is the first part of this doctrine that we call the hypostatic union. Jesus is 100% God. And He didn't lose any of that deity when He became man. When He took on an an extra nature. In the beginning of chapter 2, we found the first, five, the first of five warning passages, which we looked at last week, a very firm caution against the, the, the sin of drifting away. He says, how shall we escape then if we neglect such a great salvation? And this warning passage in verses 1-4, through four, it's, a, it's a bit of a parenthesis. We've been talking about how Jesus is greater than the angels, and that covers these two chapters. And those four verses kind of, he stops in the middle of it, and being a good pastor, preacher that he is, he, he wants to throw some application in and really challenge his audience. And so, so after verse 4, he's going to come back to this concept of Jesus and how he is greater than the angels. One might expect him to show us um, more ways that Jesus is superior to the angels. However, the author of Hebrews is going to, to turn things upside down this time. See, rather, rather, than, rather than show us the, the grandeur, rather than show us the might of the deity of Christ, he instead is going to point us to the humility of Christ and to the sufferings of Jesus and how Jesus defeats sin by not overcoming, becoming more powerful than the angels, but he defeats sin by becoming lower than the angels. Did you catch that? The one who is superior to all the angels of heaven became lower than all of the angels. God Almighty, the Ancient of Days that we just sang praise to, He took on human flesh. And for a time, the God of the universe who carried the stars of the heavens in the palm of his hand, was now being carried everywhere by a teenage girl who changed his diapers from day to day. The great Lord of all nature, who spans all of space and time, was now learning like the rest of us how to walk and how to form words 
and how not to trip over himself and scrape his knee. He wiped his nose. He sweat. He had to bathe to get rid of body odor. The one who the angels called holy, 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 again, which we just sang of, was now being tempted in every way, just like we are, and yet without sinning. And so Jesus, 100% God, became 100% man. Look at verses 5 through 9 and see how Hebrews introduces us to this paradox. He starts out by sharing two psalms with us that seem to contradict one another. Uh, now, briefly, he returns to Psalm 110. And again, it, what, what's, what's special about Psalm 110? He's going to keep on coming back to this, isn't it? I think this is the third time he's referred to Psalm 110, verse 1. And he's going to keep on coming back to this psalm, and really all of Hebrews is almost an exegesis of Psalm 110. And he's going to take us through that whole psalm by the time we get to the end of the book. So he's going to touch on Psalm 110 briefly, and then he takes us to Psalm 8. And these are two passages that share common themes, but, but in some way they don't seem to quite fit with one another. You see, Psalm 110, uh, it, again, it should be familiar to us by now, um, and we're not going to unpack the whole psalm today because Hebrews will keep, keep returning to it, but in the first verse, there's, there's this passage that says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, your footstool. And so there's this promise from God to God that He shall sit at His right hand and He will conquer all of His enemies and defeat all of His enemies. And it's a passage that was recognized by by Jews in in the Old Testament as well as Jews in Jesus' day as being a messianic psalm. And the Jews saw here a promise of the Messiah who would would conquer and who would bring His enemies to an end. And they got that part. They, they just didn't understand how God was going to do that. Now we have the advantage of holding the New Testament writings, and we have this in our hands, and so we can look back and see what's been taught and how Jesus fulfilled these and how He will continue to fulfill these. And so we understand that Jesus is going to return one day, and He will literally conquer all of His enemies. And He will rule. And He will rule with authority over the nations. And so Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, it, it alludes to this passage once again in Psalm 110. But, but then it puts us back on this discussion that he paused at at the end of chapter 1. And he says, to which of the angels did God ever subject the world to come? But then he throws us this curveball and he goes to Psalm 8. And I'd like to read it for you as we look at the context of this entire psalm together. And I want you to remember, as you're, as you're looking at these Old Testament passages, remember these pearls that he keeps showing us and he keeps stringing these pearls? Right now he's going to do some cross-referencing for us, but every time he goes to the Old Testament passage, what's your job? One of two things. You either need to already be familiar with the passage, like a lot of these Hebrew readers would have, because they knew their Old Testament. And so when he quoted one verse from a psalm, they're like, oh yeah, well I know verse 1, and I know verse 10, I also know verse 22, and yeah, that all does fit together. Because they saw that, that the author of Hebrews wasn't just quoting one verse, but he was picturing for them an entire passage. And so if you're not familiar with that passage, what are you supposed to do? Yeah, you're supposed to be a good student, and you need to go to the Word and you need to read it yourself. So next time you read through Hebrews and you go... Why did he put that there? Look it up. Go back to Psalm 22, Psalm 8, and see what he's doing here. So let's look at Psalm chapter 8 and read this together. In Psalm chapter 8, starting in verse 1, he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. 
Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. You see the common themes between those two passages? You hear how both those passages are talking about the glory of our Creator, about, about uh, conquering His enemies, how He's majestic, He's worthy of our praise, He's the Creator. But David, who's writing this psalm, he starts to ponder something. And really what he's doing, he's, he's, he's considering Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And he's pondering the creation and pondering God's work as creating the heavens and the earth. And as he ponders Genesis chapter 2 and the events of his own life in which he was promoted from this shepherd to a king, these verses are the things that, and these are the verses that Hebrews quotes. He says this next. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Just this last week, our, our scientists, uh, they turned their new, their new um, space toy, I mean their new telescope, they, they put this giant telescope uh, out in, uh, on a satellite and they put it at a point that's about five times further out into space than the moon is. And it's this perfect spot where it rotates around this one spot that's perfectly distanced from the earth that shows us things that we've never seen before. And one of the cameras that, that this, this satellite is, is specifically designed for uh, it takes infrared photographs. And one of its cameras takes these pictures with this infrared uh, doohickey. That, that's the official word that I've created for it. It's an infrared doohickey. You can put that in science paper if you want. Um, but one of the first pictures that it took revealed... Uh, strands of infrared light that span the galaxy's height. And, and yet with all the galaxies, excuse me, and almost, uh, there's almost a thousand, almost a thousand of these strands that are spaced apart the galaxy. Uh, and, and they look like harp strings. They're, they're equally distant from one another in places. And they're gathered in clusters of two and clusters of several, as much as eight. And, they, and, and each string, which they think are these electrons that are moving at high speeds, has a height of up to, wait for this, 150 light years long. Now scientists are obviously discussing the data and making the observations and talking about the satellite and what it's doing and what it's showing them. But, but as spectacular as this, this is just the first photograph they've taken with this of, of things that we've never seen before. But with David, we stand in awe and amazement. And whether it's something that's infrared that we've never noticed about the galaxy before, or we just look up into the heavens and we see the shooting stars, or watch the moon go across its course in the night. With David, we stand in awe and amazement at the work of God's fingers. And yet, with all the galaxies, with all the universe that's out there, and all the unexplored places that the human eye has never seen and never will see, it's just there for God's pleasure. Isn't it marvelous? then in all that expanse, God says, I care about each one of you. God's mindful of what's going on in your life. And God cares about these little flecks of dust on planet Earth that we call man. God is mindful of us. And David ponders that. He says, who, who are we? Who is man that you would think of us? And then David now watch what David does that, that Hebrews keeps on quoting. Verse 5, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor 
You have given Him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under His feet. And he goes and he talks about what, what that includes in the creation account. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Amen? God created us far inferior to the heavenly beings out there whether it's the moon the stars or as hebrews applies it other heavenly beings these angels we're created far inferior to these heavenly beings that we call angels but compared to god we're just a little bit lower than the angels if, if you're comparing our intelligence and our beauty and our grandeur with the angels i mean you're gonna just daniel fainted he passed out he couldn't he couldn't stand on his two feet when he, he had a conversation with one of these guys the apostle john tried worshiping them and the angel said don't do that i'm just a servant like you are and so they're glorious they're amazing but when you compare these angels with the glory that is jesus these these angels are just we're just a little bit lower than the angels and yet god crowned man with glory and honor. God gave dominion over the earth, not to the angels, but to man. And so Psalm 8, what it's doing is it's referring back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 when God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the earth. But Hebrews, it catches the similar phrases that, that David's psalm has that shares with Psalm 110, which we looked at a minute ago. And what the author of Hebrews does is, is now he's going to show how Jesus... The creator of the universe, the one who is far above all of us as angels or men, and Jesus takes on a new nature and he becomes 100% man while still being 100% God. And in this new nature, Jesus becomes lower than the angels. How do you think the angels felt about that when they finally realized what was going on? They must have just been in bewilderment to see this. It, what just happened? He, he's, he's a fetus? He's a baby? He's a man? I think they, they were just astounded, as were we. But in His humiliation and in His suffering, it's in these things that Jesus defeats death by tasting death for all of us. By humbling Himself, even to the point of the cross, by humbling Himself, He was put in a position where God gives Him the crown. It's a different way of getting the crown, isn't it? That's not the way we would have done it. It's a strange way to grant a crown to a king. But here's how Paul puts it in Hebrews chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though He was in the form of God, He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So Hebrews asks this question about Jesus' reign. If, if Christ now sits at the right hand of God, the Father, then why do we still see evil in this world? And, and as he contrasts these two passages, there's this dilemma. He's, he, he's 
finished his work. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. But what's the problem? We still see sin. We still see evil. We still see a world where people do horrible things and, and the enemy continues to do horrible things. And so he introduces us to this, uh, to this idea that we live in a period of time where we're in between. We, he, he's already come. He's already sat at God's right hand. But the complete judgment and the, prophesied, the prophecies are still yet to come. And, and the beauty is what He's accomplishing in between those two comings. In between the sitting down on that throne after accomplishing His work on the cross and when He comes back and He judges the living and the dead eventually. Today, He's still building His church. And He's still taking what is evil and transforming our hearts into the image of Jesus Christ Himself. And that's where he goes next. Look at verse 10. He says, For it was fitting. It means this, this was, this, God did a good job with this. This is amazing what God did. That's what Hebrews is telling you. For it was fitting that, for, that He for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now again, the, the Son of God who is 100% deity the one who created everything, the one for whom everything exists. It's all, it's all for His pleasure. It's for His glory. The Son of God becomes the founder of our salvation by becoming 100% man without sacrificing one iota of His deity. He's completely 100% both. And that's the union. And what do we call it again? The hypostatic union. Everybody say it together. The hypostatic union. Okay, so that when you get questioned on that one, you're not going to say it's a dry, dry lint sheet. All right. And then through His suffering, He leads us to glory. It was, it was a way, in, in a way never realized in human history, Jesus fulfills Psalm chapter 8. He leads us to glory. He leads us to our crown as humanity. And He leads us to rule over the earth and to complete our mission that God gave us from the very beginning whereas humanity has utterly failed up until that time. Now just a note here, because there's a question that may be in some of the back of your minds. How was Jesus perfected? Did you guys see that? It says that He, he, he was made perfect through suffering. And some of us, our, our minds automatically go to, um, does that mean that Jesus was incomplete in some way? That, that Jesus was flawed and He needed to, become, to come to perfection because He wasn't there already? If He's 100% God, what needs to be made perfect, right? And so just as a little bit of a side note here, we often think of this concept of perfection as something that, as something that um, implies that somehow Jesus was not complete. That He had to... Um, become something greater than he already was. And I want you to understand that that's not the point that's being made here by, by the author of Hebrews. Rather, the concept of being made perfect, it, it contains this idea that Jesus is on mission. And he is being propelled, God has propelled him forward to accomplish God's will for humanity. And by adding a human nature, and by being tempted like we are, but never sinning, by suffering on the cross, Jesus becomes the perfect representative for all of mankind. And in the, 
in the argument of where Hebrews is going, because Jesus has done these things and accomplished God's perfect will, he's, he's gone down the path that God designed for him and he perfectly completed it because of all this. Now, Jesus is our perfect high priest. And so he becomes the founder of our salvation. Not only a God who is, who is able to conquer all of these things, who is more powerful than all these things, but also a God who's experienced what it means to be human what it means to suffer, what it means to be tempted, what it means to hurt, what it means to, to be sick, what it means to be tempted just like we are. And so in all of this, we're unified with Christ. And, and here's the crazy part about where this is going on in the context of angels. Because Jesus was made perfect through suffering, he takes us on the ride with Him and we become co-heirs with Jesus. We become brothers and sisters with Him. And in His kingdom, we will rule with Him. And part of that includes something spectacular. We ourselves will one day judge angels. These beings that are so spectacular, so glorious, and we will one day judge the angels as those who are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. So watch how he supports all this. Again, he's going to take us to the Old Testament. And again, he's going to take us to two messianic passages. The first one is Psalm chapter 22. The second one is in Isaiah. And, and all he quotes here from Psalm 22 is verse 22. So Psalm 22, 22. It says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Sound nice? Sound like something from the Old Testament that makes you kind of go, uh, okay, sure. How does that fit? Sounds like a nice passage that supports the idea of our solidarity with Jesus. But, but don't miss... What are we supposed to do again? What's, what's the whole passage say? What's that? Yeah, figure it, read the rest of it. If you don't know it already, then go look it up. And so, I'm going to read the whole psalm today. And because we need to see how the suffering of Christ is tied to our partnership, uh, we're going to see that Psalm 22 is a psalm of David that he wrote when he was, when he was hurting. Uh, he was suffering himself. But, but the Jews long ago recognized that the things that David wrote as he was grieving and as he was going through these things, that some of the things that were written in this psalm clearly applied to somebody that was greater than David. Somebody that was going to accomplish something much more than David ever did. And they recognized that David's words were much bigger than just his experience. And so, in the Old Testament days and in Jesus' day, they looked forward to the experience of someone who was greater and the church reads Psalm 22 and we see it and we look back and we see the experience of Jesus in His suffering. Which is why Jesus quotes Psalm chapter 22 when He's on the cross. You're going to recognize it right away. Look at Psalm 22 with me. Verse 1, He starts out and says, My God! My God! Why have You forsaken Me? Do you recognize that one? You see, when we hear Jesus quoting that on the cross, we think in terms of He's crying out to God saying, I, why, where are you? But what Jesus is really doing on the cross when He quotes that verse 1 right there, that first half of verse 1, is He's doing the same thing Hebrews is doing. He's quoting all of Psalm chapter 22. Everything that's encompassed in this psalm, Jesus is pointing to even when He's crying out to God the Father and experiencing the weight of sin on Himself. My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? Why are You so far from saving Me from the words of My groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but You do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet You are holy, 
enthroned on the praises of Israel. Do you see how Jesus, even while He's asking why the Father has forsaken Him, that, that He was also saying much more than that? He was also recognizing that God is holy in what He's doing. He was declaring at the same time that God is holy and God is worthy of praise even while He was experiencing the guilt of sin for the first time because He took our sin upon Himself. In verse 4, He goes on and says, In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the angels. Now I want you to listen to the rest of these words and picture Jesus suffering on the cross and picture the things that were going around Him as He suffered for our sin. Verse 7, He says, All who see Me mock Me. They make mouths at Me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him. For He delights in Him, they say. Yet you are He who took Me from the womb. You made Me trust You at My mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and my, all my bones are, are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. In a much more literal way than any of the Old Testament saints ever imagined this prophecy, this passage would be fulfilled. Was Jesus mocked while He hung on the cross? It specifically says they wagged their heads and clicked their tongues. They said the very things that were said here in Psalms. Were His hands and His feet pierced? None of His bones were ever broken during His crucifixion. Did you know that? They would usually come and break the legs to make them die quicker. But Jesus had already died, and so not one of His bones was, was broken. And one of the Gospel writers says that that was to fulfill what this passage right here said. They even divided His garments right there in front of Him. They literally cast lots for one garment that was particularly special right at Jesus' feet. Verse 19, He continues and says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now, here's the verse that Hebrews is going to quote, verse 22. And understand that this is the hinge of the psalm. Verse 22 is going to be the, the door is going to flip open in a different direction. Everything before verse 22 is pointing to what? The suffering of Jesus. To what He went through on the cross. And was very vividly fulfilled in Christ's suffering there on the cross that day. But everything after verse 22 is going to point to His glorification. But here in the middle, the verse that Hebrews quotes, it quotes the hinge piece, here in this middle verse, He calls us brothers. 
And it's a word that can mean brothers and sisters. That's why some, some, verses, some translations will say brothers and sisters. Uh, he invites us to share in His reign and in the glory of His kingdom. And I want to invite you right now to participate in just in glorifying Him in your hearts as we read the rest of this passage. Let's start with verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offering of offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him. All you offspring of Israel, for He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when He cried to Him. From you comes my praise to the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. They afflict, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn that He has done it. Amen. Is Jesus not glorious? He defeated our sin on the cross and rightfully He cried out before He took His last breath, it is finished. And in His suffering, He was made perfect. In His resurrection, He leads us to glory. And though we are in this time between the already and the not yet, He's transforming us into the image of our Lord. He, he calls us His brothers and sisters. Isn't that amazing? Jesus calls you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are His follower and have trusted Him for, the justifi for your justification, forgiveness of your sins, if you have trusted Him, He calls you brother, sister, the second passage that Hebrews quotes comes from Isaiah chapter 8. and Specifically, he quotes verses 17 and 18. And, and you can read the entire chapter later, but basically the context was this. Uh, the, the nation of, of Judah, the southern kingdom, was surrounded by the uh, threat of the nation of Assyria. Assyria was threatening the southern kingdom, and, and the people were in the middle of a, of a crisis. A crisis of proportions that they had never seen before. And yet the prophet says that even though it seems like the Lord is hiding His face from us, I will put my hope in Him. I will trust in Him. And Hebrews points out that this is what Jesus did on the cross. That just like Isaiah put his trust in, in, in the Lord when it looked like all things were lost, Jesus did the exact same thing and put his trust in God. And when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22, Jesus was alluding to the rest of that psalm, which right through the middle of it does what? It talks about trusting the Lord. That when it looks like he's forsaken me, I will trust him. And so Hebrews shows us that Jesus was doing the same thing as Isaiah, and he was showing us that his trust was in the Lord. And the last verse he quotes comes from the very next verse where Isaiah points to the fact that his children 
were signs. And Isaiah himself was a sign to Judah. God said, I want you to name your kid this. I want you to name your children not my people. How would you like to have a name like that? Hi, I'm not my people. I think his other title was what, like Forsaken of the Lord or something like that. Horrible names, right? I'm sure they had a shortened name that made it a little bit better, right? And so his children, their very names were a sign of prophecy for the people. And, and so in the context of this, the author of Hebrews takes that and quite literally, again, he is, he, Isaiah had given these names that were prophetic and they spoke of Israel's future. And the author of Hebrews is noting that history is repeating itself. Just like Jesus is obedient, being obedient and trusting the Lord even more fully than Isaiah did, in the same way, because Jesus humbled Himself and became lower than the angels, and then because He humbled Himself even to the point of death on the cross, and, and, and through it all, He put His trust in God the Father, just like Isaiah and His Son were signs of God's work on Mount Zion, Christians today, Christ's brothers, are now people who are brothers and sisters with Christ. And we are doing this work that He has left for us. And in the building of the church, Christ is already in the process of overcoming evil one heart at a time. That leads us to the last section where He wraps everything up. We win. Look at verses 14-17. through I know David just read it, but let's read these again. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to make he, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. And Hebrews is going to build on that. He's kind of introducing us to the whole next section. Remember our spokes of the wheel? He's been talking about how Jesus is superior to the angels. He's coming back to the hub now. He's going to talk about how Jesus is superior. But He's just kind of introducing the next section. But what we find here is that Jesus partook death. And by doing so, He defeated the devil. He not only defeated the enemy, but He delivered us from the fear of death. Uh, We once were slaves to that fear. We had reason to fear death. We didn't know what happened on the other side. We could be afraid of the process. We could be afraid of what happens. We could be afraid of the separation. But now Jesus has taken the sting from death. And now death no longer has victory over those who belong to Jesus. You know, we live in a world where people live a lot longer than we used to. Um, we in particular are, are not used to seeing death on a regular basis. And so we, we oftentimes forget that it's part of life. Uh, our forefathers saw it all the time. Half their children didn't make it to adulthood. And so people, oftentimes today, we mask the fear of it. But wow, if anything the last two years has shown us, It didn't take much to show us how people fear. Those who are without Christ fear death. Microscopic virus that covered the globe and we've witnessed what slavery to fear looks like. People are afraid of dying. 
They'll do anything to, to, just to keep it away. And, and it's a serious thing. I'm not saying it's not serious. We need to be praying for our, our, our brother um, Dick Bowman who's, who's hurting right now. He's, he's, re- he's recovering, but uh, keep praying for him. Uh, he was down to 70% oxygen. And it's a horrible thing, but, but my friends, in Christ, Jesus has taken away our need to fear death. Without Christ, the world has no hope. But for us, death is just a doorway to the next part of eternity. And so we have victory in Christ. We have hope for the life to come. And we have a high priest who has made propitiation for our sins. That means He satisfied the wrath of God. Jesus took that wrath upon Himself. And we have a Savior who leads us and we know that He was tempted like we are. And thus He helps us He's able to help us in our temptation. And that's something that the angels didn't experience. He didn't come to help them. They knew full well what their rebellion was when the devil and his minions rebelled against the Lord. But for man, He came to help us in our time of need. The angels didn't get that opportunity. So in this hypostatic union, this perfect blending together of the 100% deity of Jesus Christ and the 100% humanity of Christ. In the Incarnation, both natures were perfectly married together. And in the Incarnation, the One who has a name and a nature that is above any of the angels, the One who humbled Himself to the point of death on the cross and humbled Himself making Himself lower than the angels, is also the One in in whom we have victory. And He has brought us into the family of Jesus Christ and made us brothers and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. He calls us brothers. And He leads us through our temptations. And He is our living hope. There's a great scene at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia where C.S. Lewis paints this picture of what lies ahead of us. And in his story, all four children, Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy, they all die. You know that? They die. Sorry, spoiler. And they don't know it. They don't even realize that they've died. All of a sudden, they're with Aslan, this great lion that represents Jesus Christ in the books. And Aslan approaches them immediately after their death. There was a railway, a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at the last, they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in in which every chapter 
is better than the one before. Father, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You for this one who became a little bit lower than the angels, gave up the glory of heaven, kept His deity, but came and became 100% man. He suffered. He died. He put His hope and His trust in You completely. And thus fulfilled perfect obedience. Father, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You that in Him, we not only have a God who is our judge, we not only have a God who is our Creator, but we have a God who has become like us and knows what it's like to suffer through the human experience. A God who, who knows what trials are. Who knows hurt. Who knows temptation. He has become our perfect High Priest. He intercedes for us. And we thank You for Him. Father, as we come to Your table this morning and we celebrate communion. A very special word, communion. We, we celebrate that we are brothers with Him. And that we have communion with one another. And that was made possible because of the very thing that Hebrews has showed us today. That Jesus Christ came and became a man. I pray that we would take this time seriously. I pray that we would take this time and realize how special this is as we gather together around your table. Amen. I'd like to ask the men to come forward.